Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 32, and we're recording on Thursday, December 12th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. And we're the editors of BookRiot.com. Uh, rumor is that you've, uh, you're full up with coffee. I am so full up. Last week, I did not caffeinate sufficiently. I forgot a book title. That is not going to happen today. <laughs> <laughs> I might be passed out by noon, like in full toddler nap time style, but right now I am going. By the power of caffeine, that shall not happen again. <laughs> right. Uh, well, it's, it's my uh, we're, we're well into December here, but the news isn't slowing down. Not at all, man. And so we're going to marshal on through here. Uh, so follow up from when was this? When did we talk about this? Who this knows? Like, no one knows. It feels like this first. We first talked about this back earlier in the fall, or maybe it could have even been summer. Um, yeah. But we got follow up. So independent bookstores were suing. Um, claiming that Amazon and big publishing houses conspired with each other to create a monopoly by using uh, DRM, digital rights management, which is technology that ensures that eBooks bought on Amazon could only be read on Kindle devices and apps. Uh, I remember when we first talked about this, that we were both like, well, <laughs> yeah. so what do indie bookstores want out of this lawsuit? Do they, do they want to be able they want a big sell. fat payment or they want to break DRM? It wasn't clear to them. Right. Did, did they want to be able to sell devices? Like a lot of indie stores sell Kobo devices. And so do they want to ensure that customers can buy devices from them, but then read Amazon books on mm-hmm. their devices? I just, it was unclear. And it appears that it, we are not the only people to whom <laughs> this did not make they total lost. sense. Yes. They lost. So that's over. And probably rightly so. Like say what you will about DRM and neither you nor I like it. But it's hard to say it's illegal. That's a tough. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but not today at least. We'll see what tomorrow holds. Right. This um, was just sort of the, the year of uh, collusion and conspiracy yeah, cases. Yeah. You know, we don't have this on the agenda, but the DOG, DOJ Apple stuff is getting stirred up again. So again. we're going we're gonna to keep track on that. And when there's actual something to report, we'll bring that back. But murmury, murmurs and whispers that something else is going to happen there. All right, let's get into our first sponsor, and then we'll get on with the day show. So Random this is House you. Audio is back. We've All had right. them uh, several times around on the show so far, and we appreciate them. You can uh, check out tryaudiobooks.com, which is a website that Random House Audio has built that recommends audiobooks for all types of listeners. Uh, so whether you're into crafting or fitness or travel or sci-fi or any number of other things, if you're looking for a family-friendly audiobook to take in the car uh, for your holiday road trip, uh, this is a great place to go and get get some recommendations. Right now, uh, they've got a free download of the complete audiobook of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which would be perfect for your family trip. Uh, and they also have a tool called the Personal Audiobook Assistant, where you can put in 
the uh, ideal length of audiobook that you're looking for, and it will recommend some for you. Uh, you and I are both big audiobook. Big fans. Big fans. Um, and, and this has cool suggestions. So if, if you're a runner, it recommends uh, reading World War Z, and it says it's uh, 12 hours and five minutes long. So if you run a t- at a 10-minute mile pace, uh, then it'll take you 72 miles to uh, finish this book. Uh, and give some other tips. They uh, have all kinds of cool family road trippers, sci-fi and adventure. They've even got a list of reasons to try audiobooks here um, and a newsletter that you can sign up for. So uh, I would I would check out tryaudiobooks.com, especially if you haven't tried them previously. Yeah, you got to try out. I mean, it's a good URL, actually. That's a good snag for them. But give this, give audiobooks a whirl. You know, both of us have found that sometimes even doing things we normally don't like to do, we will extend if there's an audiobook that we're particularly into, like we'll keep uh, walking. Or, yes, my uh, we'll dog gets long We'll run walks. a few more errands um, or uh, go wait in the longer grocery checkout line just to give ourselves a few more minutes with an audiobook. I um, have not thought of listening to hey. an audiobook. That would make me so much oh, less Oh, hey, we haven't been to the Trader the Joe's store. in Brooklyn. <laughs> You're looking... It's, it's like I've Thunderdome in there. i that that was enough. I know. It's like Thunderdome in there with everyone <laughs> trying to get discount gourmet cheese um so try try audiobooks.com thank you so much for sponsoring the show and check them out to support the show yeah give it a shot so um we are full in the throes oh yes we are end of year best books list they're coming at us from right and left it's just you know we're trying to dodge best of books lists uh every which way but we we put we threw our hats into the ring this week we did this is one of my favorite things to do with book riot contributors every year and so we have one massive post uh it's like 65 or 67 titles because there there are a ton of us now at book riot and each contributor got to pick um up to two of their favorite titles of the year we didn't allow any repeats uh so even though our reading taste overlaps quite a bit everybody had to pick unique titles if somebody beat you to one that you were thinking of you had to think of another book that you loved and there's there's so much variety on this list. Um, there are books that are appearing on lots of other best of the uh, best of the year lists, but then there are titles that probably aren't on any other best of the year lists. And I think that's it's sort of exactly what I want out of a book riot list. It's just as eclectic and idiosyncratic and weird uh, as we all are. Yeah, we have comedy, YA, nonfiction. Um, graphic novels, literary fiction, comics, romance, horror, mystery, biography, um, short stories. We've got Christian. I don't even um, know how to summarize this. There's, there's nothing you can say. Really. There's like, it really is Kids a little books, bit of everything. Uh, um, and I, I mean, I think just go a, look at it, right? It's I mean, been a, yeah, this has been a phenomenal. It year has been a for, wonderful year for, for books. books, and of the books on our you know, collective best of list, there are probably ten or maybe a dozen that um, that I would have felt comfortable picking among my favorites if other contributors hadn't picked them. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to say which one you picked? I think I talked about it last time. I, I teased it saying mine was uh, Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, mm. um, which I have to steal my courage to try that name every time, but I'm getting better at it. You are. That would, There was some swagger in that delivery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was actually pre-recorded. I hit a little button and it just uh, came on there. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to spoil it. You can read my blurb here. Um, you picked... I can't remember now. What did I you picked pick? All That Is by James Salter. You did, because both, we both liked that. And we kind of had a little uh, 
uh, Mazurka about who was actually going to get to write about that. We did. Uh, and it's his first novel in more than 30 years. Uh, he's 87, so it might well be his last. And it's just it's a really incredible novel, but it's also a love letter to the publishing industry. The main character is a World War II veteran who has become a book editor. And there are just really beautiful passages about the characters, um, his reading life, the role that books have played in his life, and also some funny little inside stuff about publishing. Um, if you haven't read James Salter, I think that all that is is just as good a starting point as it is an ending point. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you love all that is, it contains sort of all of the trademark Salter uh, pieces of writing, and then you can go back and uh, dive into his backlist. If somehow it doesn't work for you, then his backlist probably wouldn't uh, work for you either. Mm -hmm. But he's you know, one of our shared favorites, and that was an, an incredible book this I read year. that on ebook. It's, it's not very long, is it? I don't remember. I read it as an ebook too. Mm, okay. Um, I, it's like normal novel length. <laughs> 330 pages then. Approximately. Yeah. I, if I had to guess, that's what I would guess. Right, okay. Uh, he doesn't write very long novels, so I'm not surprised. There's just so much packed into yeah. them. Uh, and then my other pick is one is a book that I've been talking about kind of nonstop for the last couple of months, um, Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better by Clive Thompson. That's good. It's a good one. Uh, the internet is not ruining us, but it's also not going to be the solution to all of our problems. So let's talk about the interesting ways that it is changing us instead. And it's great. So you can go look at that. We'll drop that in the show notes. Um, probably what's maybe more interesting is a topic of conversation uh, post that's running today. We asked the Book Riot readers mm -hmm. for their best books, their favorite books of 2013, um, new books, I should say. Um, and the results were pretty interesting. Uh, not surprising, I yeah, wouldn't there say. Were, there was nothing on this list that was, well, maybe one. Our boy D. Brizzle made it, Inferno by Dan Brown. That's right. Was, uh, uh, number 22. Number 22 out of the top 24 that are on this list that we've published. Um, but everything else, pretty expected. Maybe not in the order that I would have guessed. Um, and there's a good amount of overlap between the reader's picks and our picks. Yeah, probably um, the first five Mm -hmm. A lot of readers who are paying attention have heard of. So Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman, number one, was 73 votes. The Goldfinch, number two, by Donna Tartt, was 62 votes. Life After Life by Kate Atkinson with 54 votes. Then Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell. Rowell? Rowell? We can't decide. Okay. Rowell. Rowell. Uh, with 40 votes. And The Mountain Echoes by Colette Hosseini, 32. So those are all books that got talked about a lot. They did. And we had uh, just... If you're interested, we had 545 readers uh, completed the survey, and they got to list up to three titles. So there are 473 unique titles listed in this. And there's a link to the full data set if you feel like nerding out and seeing mm -hmm. all of the books that got even just one mention that were new this year. Uh, you can click on that in the link and check it out. A pretty good list. Here's an interesting uh, anecdotal thing because I was going through the um, through oh, the yeah, responses. You, you're the one that gets your hands dirty with this stuff. I do. So you it, look at the raw. I data. turn on really loud bad music and I just go to town on a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. uh, and the mountains echoed by Khaled Hosseini. When I first I, I started going through this when we had about 400 responses in and there were just a couple days left um, to complete the survey and I was collating and looking and you know just sort of getting a feel for how this was going to shake out and cleaning up the spreadsheet um, you know to pull out articles at the beginning of titles and quotation marks around things and just stuff to sort of make everything uniform and the Khaled Hosseini book was not showing up in the top and then near the end of the period where our survey was open the goodreads choice awards were announced oh. um, and we talked about those on the show 
last week. And in those last two days that the survey was open, there was a huge surge of readers mentioning, adding that to the survey. Huh. Um, I think most of the uh, 32 votes that it got in our survey came in at the at the last bit, and so this is just a guess. It's just you know correlational, but I'm really I'm wondering. You're like, oh yeah, yeah. Is that, you if, think that was it? Yeah, hmm. if uh, if having it win the Goodreads Choice Award, I think it was for literary fiction. Well, annoying um, our people too. Some of the people are like, I'm going to read that right now. <laughs> right. If it just sort of reminded them that they read that earlier yeah. in the year and that they liked it and, and brought it back uh, to the front of their minds. But that was the, just an interesting thing to see. Um, Rainbow Roll had two titles, uh, Fangirl and Eleanor Park. Uh, Eleanor and Park are on here. Um, the Cuckoo's Calling by Robert Galbraith, right. J.K. Rowling. I'm not sure I expected that. No, I didn't either. Uh, number six, The Constellation of Vital Phenomena by Anthony Mara is a book. I've heard a lot of people talk about, and it shows up at number six here. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe a, a bit of a dark horse um, for those of you out there that are interested in finding some undiscovered or, you know, under-talked about gems. Another one, The Gollum and the Ginny by Helen Wacker, or mm-hmm. Helene, I guess it would be, since it has an E on the end. That's a book that a lot of our contributors have really liked, but I haven't seen as many people talk about Yeah, um, I think that one's openly. starting... That one's just sort of starting to pick up steam again. Um, I thought it was interesting that Nosferatu by Joe Hill showed up on this list. Um, I knew it would show up on the contributors list, and I think we actually had a few contributors duke it out. Um, Peter Damien wrote about it for our list, but it also shows up on the reader favorites. It had 16 votes. Uh and I thought it was really great. It will ruin Christmas for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you if you want to like... win the war on Christmas, go read Nosferatu. Oh, and Dr. Sleep by Stephen King made the list. And Dr. Sleep, uh, Stephen King is Joe Hill's father. So we've got a father and a son. On and our... then we also have The Sun by Philip Meyer, which is also an ex. This is a very good <laughs> top 24. <laughs> it is. I was thinking, you know, you could take this list that Book Riot readers picked of the best books of the year and you could build your next year of reading out you of it. You definitely could. Um, I haven't read them all. You know, I thought Allegiant by Veronica Roth, which appeared at number 17 here, was a snooze. Mm. So, you know, that's one that I've read that I, I don't know. I mean, if you're really into Divergent, you have to read it. Um, but boy, kind of tough to get through. So yeah, everything else that I haven't read, I'm, I want to read. Let's see. How many of you, let's see. I've read I'm counting right 10, now. I think. Um, one, two, two three, four, three, six. I've read six four, of these. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. No, 10, 10, 10, 10. You're so fancy. Yeah. See, that's all I read those. I only read fiction. You read nonfiction and crap. <laughs> So I have a, I'm having a disadvantage advantage. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. True. Those are, those are the, and I let you filter things for me. That's true. That's true as well. <laughs> um, so you can check those out. I guess that we have one other best of the year list going up next week. Will that be our best of the backlist? Is that when yes. that's happening? Yeah. Next week we will have the best of the backlist, which is the best books that we read this year that were not published in 2013. Right. So you can check that out as well, because everyone knows that. I mean, one thing that's sort of a false construct of, I guess that's all constructs are false to some degree, of um, the best of phenomenon is that most of the time, real readers read across the years, right? Mm -hmm. So to say the best of 2013 is a little bit arbitrary. It makes good news. And we like reading about it and writing about it too. But when it's really talking about your year in reading, it seems 
strange to 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 limit it to twelve uh, months. In fact, my best reading experience was not by a twenty thirteen book this year, but I'll talk about that next time when we're <sighs> talking about the list. You know what it is? I've talked to you about it before. You mm-hmm. probably just can't remember. Um, all right, so let's move on. Norway. Norway. I think maybe I'm just going to move. Can we have a riot outpost? Well, is it this or Iceland? Somewhere in Scandinavia. So mm-hmm. maybe we can get like one of those little. Um, James Bond villain islands on a volcano <laughs> island somewhere yes. between Norway and Iceland. I could do so well in a little <laughs> volcano hideaway. Powered by geothermal energy and coffee. I so, would get like, drink a lot of coffee and get up on an exercise bike to run <laughs> the electricity for the day. <laughs> to, turn, to run the uh, electric uh, kettle for the fresh right. press. So Norway <laughs> so, has decided that it's important enough to them, the National Library of Norway is going to digitize and make available all books available in Norwegian. That's all it. All the books. All the books. All the hundreds, Norwegian books. Hundreds of thousands It's going to take them 20 to 30 years to yeah. do it. Every book in the National Library of Norway is going to be digitized. Well, is then, it every book or just all the books that are in Norwegian? I think it's it just... It says every, every book... Oh, in every book in the library's holdings in Norwegian. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, but still hundreds of thousands yeah, yeah. I'm, of them. I'm just saying, like, probably the National Library of Norway has other and non-Norwegian then, books, but anyway. If you happen to be in Norway as measured your, by your IP address, you'll be able to access all of the 20th century works, even those that are still under copyright digitally through the National Library of Norway. You know what this is? This is screw you, publishers. I kind of like it. I have to admit, it's bold. This is full on, like, oh, we live in the future. It really (laughs) is amazing. It's great. Um, You know, I was really surprised. I tweeted this out from the Book Riot account yesterday and was like, look at Norway being awesome. This is so cool. And um, a lot of people agreed. But then we had several people tweet back about, you know, the government being creepy and digitizing things. And like, right, like digital books will even help us at all after the apocalypse. Uh, Wait, let me (laughs) stop you right there. Just for a second. That's why it's called the apocalypse. You don't have to worry about the book. I think we've got we. The, oh boy, this is a weird uh, Are we digression. A but here we go. Problem? Yeah, apocalypse is over. When we use apocalypse now, people interchange dystopias with apocalypse, but that's not the same. Apocalypse is it's over. Mm-hmm. We're not going to worry about the books in Norwegian when the, the apocalypse happens. Because you know what? We're all going to be wherever we've gone on and to. if we're approaching the apocalypse, we'll just have the professor guys carrying books around in their heads like in exactly. Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> that yeah, or, is just or like the, way uh, it's the go giver, down. the just one guy will have mm-hmm. all the, the repository of all knowledge and experience. So anyway, ba- meanwhile, back at the ranch. <laughs> A um, brief rant about the apocalypse. Yeah, sorry. People say <laughs> stuff like that about digital books like, well... You know what? What if it's a fire apocalypse? I'm sure the books will hold up super great. Or water. Wait, that's never happened before. Oh, wait. Only the most famous uh, apocalypse in Western literature was water. Uh, Okay. So, I don't know what to say about Norway. (laughs) Boy, I'm full of... uh, Whoa there. Full of vinegar all of a sudden. Um, So... There we go, Norway. I don't know. Well, since we're talking about ebooks and the apocalypse, we can move on to our next story. Wait, I'm out of the agenda. I'm looking at Norway and polar bear eye sculptures. What, what's, <laughs> you do it. You're up next. <laughs> 
uh, publishingtechnology.com is wondering uh, if 2014 will be the year of the ebook subscription service. Well, wasn't this 2013? I thought it was. Or just the mass amount of people getting on board. Is that what I they kind of mean? I guess that's probably uh, what it will be. There's The opening line of this piece it says, it's quite likely that we'll look back at 2013 as the year when publishing stopped talking about the Netflix or Spotify for eBooks and actually did something about it. Uh, so I think that's right. 2013 uh, so far for eBooks has been the year of a little less conversation and a little more action, as our friend Elvis would put it. Mm-hmm. Um, Oyster finally did the thing of creating uh, a streaming content model for eBooks. And you and I both love it. Uh, They have a 30-day free trial offer is running right now. I just saw on Facebook this morning. So you can check it out at oysterbooks.com if you're using an iPhone or an iPad. Um, And Scribd. Right. And Scribd uh, rolled out as well. So we saw two startups. Don't you want to know the numbers? God, I'm dying for numbers. do. Uh, how many people are doing it? How long do they they stay on for a while? Or they drop off. Um, iPhone, Android breakdown. I want it all. Well, and we've talked before. Last week we talked about the awesome uh, woman who is the chief digital officer at Harper Collins, and how Harper Collins has been sort of the first uh, to jump on to each of these new opportunities and to be experimenting with technology. So maybe 2014 can really be the year, not just that reader that more readers try out these services and that it reaches uh, wider adoption than just uh, early adopters like you and me, but that publishers That's uh, that, that more point. publishers will jump on to it as well. It, it, it's got to come from both sides. I think it can't. Just just be readers trying out the new stuff, but publishers need to jump on, um, opening up, you know, more titles for availability. You can read the Hobbit on Oyster right now if mm. you want to. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. Cause I think Oyster and Scribd don't, they're not, I'm not even sure they're open to the public. If Harper Collins doesn't get on board, I'm not sure there's enough there, there mm-hmm. without, uh, the big HC. Um, so that's a, yeah. Who's going to be the next domino to fall? I would guess maybe Macmillan. Yeah, Macmillan has got some some titles. A yeah. lot of publishers have a few titles. Right, right. But I mean, here. a whole kind of whole hog, so to speak. Yeah, they've would... done some stuff with Tor and DRM mm-hmm. Free, and have shown a little bit more interest in uh, pushing the envelope than some of the others have. So, but I don't know. That's just a, that's a I have yeah, no inside information at all. So it'll be interesting to see how it develops. Or I could imagine um, maybe Harlequin would be a really good fit. To do this, romance yeah. readers have been reading digitally. Um, they were some of the first adopters of ebooks, and so to roll out some romance, which is you know, Harlequin is huge. Yeah, I wonder how much autonomy. Speaking of Har- Harlequin as his own imprint, but let's say, um, you know, one of the uh, mystery or sci-fi or fantasy imprints mm. could they could they make that decision on their own or in a concert with the parent company? Because some of those, I think you're right to, to mention genre as being particularly suited for. Yeah. Ebook subscription services. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I would. I just like to, you know, see more publishers continue this and and try it out with Scribd and Oyster and open it up. Um, that's the piece of resistance that I've heard from more readers than anything else is. Well, if I'm if I'm going to drop, you know, ten bucks a month on a subscription model, then I want to know that there's a lot of content available to me, and I want to see more than one big publisher jump on it. Now, like my having used it for several months, my response to that is that there's already way more available in Oyster than I could read in a Yeah, lifetime. I think we forget sometimes how much backlist these big boys have. Right. There's plenty there. I mean, if Random House Penguin got on board, that'd be all you need forever, basically. Right. You could just be set, like, or just the Penguin Classics right. um, by themselves. You could stay really busy with that for a good 
long while. So uh, the question, publishing technology, will 2014 be the year of the ebook subscription service? My answer is I hope so. I hope so too. Um, speaking of good news, well, I think we might have to drop this in methodology corner, even though we like this result, I think. All right. Tell me something good. Pew um, Internet and American Life Project, which basically they do a bunch of polling about how people feel about stuff, basically mm-hmm. did one about libraries. And the main question of this survey was, if your local library, public library closed, what impact would you – What? whoa, 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 back it up, Jeff. What impact <laughs> would that have on you and your family and your community as a whole? So – and they were given four choices, a major impact, minor impact, no impact. Hmm. So for impact on you and your family, 29% of respondents said major impact, and 38% of respondents said minor impact, so okay. leaving 32% with no impact. Mm-hmm. But the more interesting one, I think, is the impact on your community. And 63% of respondents said major impact, and 27% of respondents said minor impact. So 90% of respondents to the survey say that the closing of a local public library would have at least a minor impact um, on the community as a whole, which I guess is good, right? But I'm wondering about that spread between you and your family at 29% and the impact of the community as a whole at 63%. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, I think that impact on a community ranking that's really just a guess unless you're well super... isn't a guess isn't a guess on you and your family too sort well i mean i i think people tend to be more informed about their own like whether families. or not they're actually in the library where am i oh this place <laughs> smart jeff <laughs> right. thanks yeah no problem uh, <laughs> you're more informed about your own family's situation and how frequently you use the library and probably how much money the use of the library saves you mm-hmm. or how much you depend upon the library for access to um, to books, to movies, to music, and to information technology than you are about your community's use of that thing. So, I mean, if I had to really guess about how this works, I'd say that the, those 29% of people who said that it would have a major impact on them and their family, like they know what they're talking about. And that's probably a really, uh, a close to accurate measure. Um, you know what it, you know what it would do to your family's, you know, bottom line and to your family's experience. Um, even if all you're using your library for is taking your kids to story time on Saturday mornings, if that's an important part of your family's activities together, then you could feel like that's a major impact. But this impact on community thing is a little fuzzier. It's, um, I want to say floppier. Like that's a, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Like, like I could say, I think there are a lot of people in my community who need a library, or I know I live in a community where um, where people are economically disadvantaged and they rely on the library, or at least I think they rely on the library, but you can't really, you, unless you're deep into the actual numbers of your community's use of these things and how many books per year they buy or how many they borrow, like that's, it's just a guess. You're just guessing. Sure. I guess what it does tell you is that we perceive the impact of the library to be much greater than it is on our own lives. Mm-hmm. Like the libraries are good for other people um, yeah. more than they're good for us. Not to say that they're not good for us. 67% of respondents did say it would have some impact, but um, a th- it's kind of a third more impact perceived in the larger community, which I think is, I think speaks to how we think of libraries as a public trust, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what public trusts do they exist to some degree for our own benefit, but 
we really value them that they exist at all, um, that they can be available to people who need them when they need it. Okay, so this was 622, uh, 600, geez Louise, 6,224 Americans ages 16 and older, mm-hmm. um, landline and cell phone in English and Spanish. Okay. So that's a pretty good yeah, sample. This, uh, the piece that we'll link to in the show notes uh, acknowledges that the one question they didn't ask people, which is the question that I would want to know too, is if these libraries are so important to you and your community, are you willing to pay higher taxes to keep them open? Yeah. Um, how valuable is that public trust to you? Um, I tend to not use the library mainly out of laziness. Um, but I'm happy to pay taxes for it in the same way that I don't have children, but I pay taxes for public education. Right. Um, but I, I would like to see if people were pressed. Um, if only 30% of them, 29%, would feel a major impact on their family from the closing of the library, are, are that remaining 34%, uh, that difference between major impact on your family and major impact on your community, um, are those people in that gap willing really to, to back it up? To pony and, up for it. Yeah, to continue paying taxes, um, even if it doesn't affect their family. How far would you go to make sure that your community still has these things? Um, to me, it sort of feels like responses to surveys about independent bookstores. Yes, too. I was going to say um, the same thing. Yeah, there's a lot of um, sort of every time there's a rallying cry about the value of independent bookstores, we we hear from indie booksellers and rightfully so who say, you know, you you can't just say that indie bookstores matter to you. Um, you can't just walk into an indie bookstore, which I've, I've heard from friends who, you know, work in them and own them that people often walk into the stores and look around and say like how nice it is that the neighbors, that the neighborhood still has an independent bookstore and then they don't spend any money Mm -hmm. in it. Um, your lip service doesn't keep a place alive and your lip service won't keep the library open. They say you can't do that, but of course you can. I mean, you can do that, but you, well, yeah, you can do that, but it doesn't, uh, your, your well wishes don't make it sustainable. Right. Your lip service, um, to the value of a thing in the community doesn't have any tangible benefit to that institution or organization there. You have to take some measures to keep the place open. And so if it's a, if it's an indie bookstore and you value that in your community, then you've got to spend your dollars in it. And if it's the library and you value that in your community, then you first, you have to use your library because circulation numbers impact funding and which libraries stay open. And then you've got to be willing to back it up and to take the tax hike if that's what it requires. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought this was an interesting study about perception. Um, and we'll put the show notes there. Let's see, was there other bit about, Oh, what people, uh, what's the most important to you in a mm-hmm. library? Um, 80% said books and media were at least somewhat important. I guess that's okay. not surprising. Library and assistance, 76% go librarians. Nice. Having a quiet, safe place at 75%, I thought was really telling mm-hmm. that it's all, I mean, very close to as important as the books themselves, which for my use of a library is very much the case. Mm-hmm. That especially in New York, where you have smaller, smaller apartments and fewer public spaces to go to at all, that having some place you can go sit down and read or work is really super important. Um, help finding and applying for a job, 51%. Help applying for government services, 53%. Internet computers and printers, 58%. Programs for youth, 
50%. Wow. So, so much of what people value about a, a library is not the book's on the shelves. That's the number one thing. But if you look at the long tail of what people care about, that if all the books went away, I think you'd still have a case for libraries. I think there'd be a very strong one. I think you would too. The the reader's advisory portion of a librarian's job is still very important, but librarians are on the front lines of teaching people about new forms of literacy, namely um, internet literacy and navigating, um, using the internet, how to do research, how to apply for a job online, even just how to set up an email address if you've never had one before. Um, And I don't think that we talk about that enough, um, that librarians are really leading the way and providing really valuable education for our communities, particularly for people who were out of school already when, or who, you know, when, uh, the internet became what it is. Um, I was listening to a new podcast that I've been telling you about, Mm -hmm. uh, called you are not so smart. That's hosted by David McRaney. And on the latest episode, episode, I think it's 13, uh, he interviews Clive Thompson, who spoke smarter than you think I mentioned earlier. And they talk a lot about the developing literacies and all of the new things that we have to become um, competent in doing because of the internet. Uh, and how librarians are leading the charge for that, not just in schools, but in our communities for people who are out of school, but who still, you know, who didn't learn it in school. And um, if you are just not naturally inclined to go poking at stuff and figuring out how the Internet works, who uh, need someone to guide them through it. And librarians are providing that. Um, it's an incredible thing that they're doing and uh, just really valuable. I, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, it's it like, is. Yay, it's librarians. super, super valuable. Um, let me just run through a couple other stats in this survey. 48% of Americans have visited a library in the past 12 months. That's down from 53% in 2012. Okay. Um, let's see. I thought this was interesting as well. Among parents with minor children living at home, 70% say that a child in the house has visited a public library or bookmobile in the past 12 months. So you're almost, mm-hmm. you know, you're 50% more likely to visit a library if you're a kid, which is interesting. Um, so there's some more stuff there if you really want to take a deep dive. Anything surprise you up or downside about that particular? You know, not really. Yeah. Okay. The kids number, that makes sense to me, especially picture books are expensive. Yeah. And, and you are, run through them. God, kids are hard on books. And so if you've... Uh, if you can take your kid to a library or a bookmobile and get a stack of stuff and then return it the next week and get another stack of stuff um, rather than having to buy a jillion kids books, I think that's the way to go. I guess the thing that surprised me is that they listed bookmobiles here. I guess I don't think of bookmobiles as being all that common anymore. Maybe Feels like an ha- old timey thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Like maybe they're having a resurgence. We've seen uh, some stuff about library branches closing or libraries uh, trying to find creative ways to reach their user bases um, in light of funding challenges and creating bookmobiles or book vending machines on their campuses, all, all kinds of cool stuff. So that was just seeing the uh, bookmobile thing included as an option was interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, let's move on with more stats. Do it. Um, we've see, I guess it was a few episodes ago. We talked about um, Kelly Jensen's look at the gender breakdown of YA bestsellers in the New York times. Mm-hmm. So someone, this is at Lee and Lowe, um, they looked at the New York Times top 10 bestseller list for 2012 okay. to look at um, the how many of them were people of color, right, mm-hmm. versus just white. 
Mm-hmm. And it's as bad or worse than you might have guessed. Uh, uh, only three of the 124 authors who appeared in the top 10 of the New York Times bestseller list were people of color. And that's if you count... And those e. were James Sylvia Bean. Day, who is half Japanese, E.L. James, who is half Chile- uh, Chilean, and Tess Gerritsen, who is Chinese-American. So that is <laughs> not cool. So not a single black person. Not a single one. Um, not a single American Latino. Um, not a single anybody else you want to say. <laughs> not even Louise Erdrich, who is nope. part Native American. Apparently not. Uh, if they've done their study right, and it looks like they have. Um, My soul cries. This it's is... so bad. I mean, it's so bad. It was 2012. We got a new Toni Morrison book in 2012. Yeah, we did. That's true. And a new Colson Whitehead book in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I mean, I don't know what to say. Uh, I guess what I guess what it is is, you know, I guess it is that the t- this is, like, you know, remember, remember in biology class, you had to do like those, um, like the food chain things. Yeah. And as you got closer to the top, it was a narrow, narrower field till you got to the top level predators like lions and eagles and stuff, mm-hmm. right? So I think as you get closer and closer to the top of publishing, the bias, the structural biases become more and more obvious, right? Right. So here at the top, this is where it's the most obvious. Um, and these are all women too, I think it's worth pointing out. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means that all the three of the 124 are, are women there. Um, Boy, that's frustrating, and that it, it's not good. It's really not good. I don't even know what to say about it. It's really disappointing. Um, I guess disappointing is the way to go. It's not a like it's not a methodology problem. It's not no. a selection problem. This isn't mm-hmm. like there's no panel to blame. No, um, it's not the, like they picked people with only <laughs> cell phones or something like that. Right? Yeah. In the first, I think in the first quarter of each year, the Vita numbers come out, mm-hmm. which show um, the race. And gender. Yeah, we can blame some editor at the New York Review right, of Books, yeah, right? Yeah, or some those, jerk over there. Those studies show like Well, the here the jerk is of, us. Here right. the jerk is us. Yeah, we are... We are the jerk. We are the jerk. Um, what a bummer, It's such man. a bummer. I don't know what to say about it, except I'm, I'm no longer listening to people who say that it doesn't matter if you don't read diversely, because you know what? It does matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how to say it matters or what you should be doing or doing differently. Um... I don't even know that this, you know, because where do you, I think it's where a, do you lay the blame here? I don't even put on publishing necessarily because they're they're publishing people of color, not in the same ratio that they're publishing white authors, but at the very top, we're just not buying those books. We just well, aren't doing it. There's this, you know, weird sort of echo chamber spiral thing that happens in publishing. I was thinking, well, it'd be interesting to see what the publicity budgets looked like for the books that made these bestseller lists and what the publicity budgets look like for authors of color versus for white authors. There you go. But those things, they feed on each other. If you crack the bestseller list, then your publisher adds to your publicity budget so that you can stay on the bestseller list and keep making the money. Um, and if you don't crack the bestseller list, then, you know, you get less money. They don't re up your next contract is in jeopardy. I mean, all kinds of things happen if you don't sell as many books as your publisher anticipates that you will. And so it would be, I think it would just be really difficult to tease out the variables there that lend to this huge gap. But, but I do want to talk about how we can't just let people 
I don't think that we should let readers and I don't think we should let ourselves as readers off the hook, as you were saying, for not reading diversely. Um, I see it more when we talk about um, why men should read female authors and why women should read male authors. And there's inevitably someone jumps into the conversation who's like, well, it's not that I intentionally don't read books (laughs) by women. It's just that books by women don't interest me. That is like if you think that that is true, it is a failure of your imagination. That surely, uh, in a world where half of the people are women, some woman has written a book that that can and will be interesting to you. Yeah. Uh, but if you've decided that you're just not interested in things that women write, then you're not trying. You're not even trying. Right. Well, and also uh, last year didn't. Um, I wonder what the black the last black person to appear on the top ten of the New York bestseller list was. I mean, who would have even been? Did Zone One crack no, the top ten? No, you don't think? No, 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 no. Hmm. Probably the last Jasmine time. Jasmine Ward salvaged the bones no, when it won the National Book Award. I don't think so. Or the Pulitzer. We know those; those don't move any units. That's we know true. how little those move. Probably the last time Oprah picked a black person, maybe when she picked Edwidge Dandicott or something like that, mm. um, could have moved them that way. Maybe when she picked Morrison. You know, right. So it would have been you know, what eight was or the nine last? years ago. 10 years ago that right was? if right if tony morrison didn't crack the top 10 for yeah. home i wonder if she did for a mercy a few years no, before that no, probably no, she not. didn't she didn't um so if reader listeners if you know this, if you know yeah we would like to know um i feel like this is an internet rabbit hole i might go down today. yeah well and james mcbride won for this year for a good lord bird so mm-hmm. but it's not going to do it it's just not going to do it um, so it's, it's very sad and I don't know, maybe I'm going to write something about this, but yeah, uh, that, let's move on. Um, yeah, we've said our piece here. Find a book by a person who is not like you, not and like read you it. and read something more about, yeah, this is a happy news. You take this one. Uh, so we're, we're always asking you all to let us know if you test out something that we talk about on the show, or if you get a good idea, if you read one of the books that, that we recommend. And a few weeks back, we talked about uh, what Jeff dubbed the first lines game. Uh, and one of our listeners, Jason Stevenson, hi, Jason. Uh, he goes by teacherman82 on Twitter, tweeted to us uh, to let us know that he played that game with his students. And he wrote a blog post about it, where you, uh, you pick a book. You show the participants the cover, you give them the title, and then you read the jacket copy from the back, uh, and you have participants write down, uh, they make up a first line for the book. Um, everybody turns them in, and someone writes down what the actual first line of the book is. You shuffle everything together, read them aloud, and then people vote to, to say what they think um, the, the first line was. And so Jason Stevenson played this game with his writing students. They picked a book called The One I Left Behind by Jennifer McMahon. Uh, and he puts the the cover and the synopsis on his blog, along with all of the first lines that his writing students came up with. And he tells us about how it broke down. Uh, so that was just, it was just a great, cool, yeah, we like to see that cool tweet to get and fun to hear about how listeners of the show are trying out these ideas. I thought this game was really fun when I played it in a bar with some friends. Uh, and I'll like force it on people after a couple of drinks and a round of cards against humanity. Uh, it's a, it's a good fun, like super nerdy thing to do at a party. And, uh, and we'll, those are our favorite kind of parties, yeah, the super right. nerdy kind. <laughs> so we'll drop the link. You know what I just realized? Yeah, we'll drop the link in the show notes. You can check that. I just realized we may have a candidate for a 2013 bestseller uh, from a person of color. 
um, because, as we talked about last week, Colette Hosseini won the Goodreads Reader's Choice Award right. for fiction for And the Mountains Echoed. Mm-hmm. So there's a really good chance that's going to be a top 10 bestseller. It may have already been at some point this year. I don't follow week in, week out what's on the New York Times bestseller list, I have to say. Though I was in Costco and I saw it on the table there, and that's an awesome indicator yeah, that you're going to sell is, some books. That is a hard position to get because Costco only sells like 20 titles yep, at a time, something right. like that. Um, good for... Good for him. So anyway, the, the reason I bring that up is our next story is that Goodreads uh, uh, released a graph of the activity surrounding And the Mountains Echoed as a result of it being both nominated and winning the fiction category for the Goodreads Reader's Choice Award. So in the weeks and months leading up to the, uh, I guess you'd call poll, right? Mm-hmm. I guess it's a poll. It looks like about, you know, about 800 people a week were adding And the Men's Echoed to their bookshelves and about, I don't know, 400, the, the graph's a little small, so I'm just sort mm-hmm. of eyeballing a little bit, were um, adding it to their to-read lists. But when it was announced that it won, that day 10,000 people added it to their to-read lists. So a factor of 25 I want to drag this thing into methodology corner. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, that's interesting. (laughs) I'm going to beat it over the head and drag it into my cave. Yeah. So, Uh, and and again, added were equivalently large. This is uh, sort of a problem that I have every time Goodreads releases uh, stats because Mm. they're not really stats in like in in any meaningful sense. Like we don't have any idea what, um, impact on book sales or on books being read. Well, now realize they're not making a claim about being read or sales. I know it just bothers me. I I know. I know you want to know how many they ship. (laughs) Right. So uh, I don't really care that 10,000 people added the book to one of their shelves. I want to know like how many of them went that day or that week and bought it because of that or maybe a year later like this is what goodreads please do this like Mm. show us a year from now how many people have moved it from their to be read shelves to their have read well and if we're gonna dump water as i guess you're doing you got out the pail and you're dumping water so here we go (laughs) the other way to do it is okay so in the week after it won best fiction only ten thousand people added it to their list and there's what five million goodreads users uh, there's like 20 million. Is that how million, that, it's like 25 million, but like 5 million of them are active. Oh, 5 million active monthlies. Yeah, we've done a research yeah. about this. So when you put it in that perspective, it's like, eh, kind of <laughs> small, right? Right. And Goodreads, you know, now is owned by Amazon. Mm-hmm. So the numbers exist somewhere. Like Amazon notoriously does not like to share their sales numbers. They send out press releases pretty frequently about how like this was the biggest weekend ever for uh, for pre-orders of a thing. Uh, but then there won't be any numbers about what biggest ever means. Uh, and, and we talk about that a lot sort of in publishing media that it's hard to know what this stuff means because Amazon is not transparent. Right. And um, we're never going to get that. Just, 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 just to like, be clear, just we, to be clear, I don't want it all. I mean, it would be great if they would give it, give us all of the numbers. But if Amazon would just like show a little leg, here, <laughs> just this one title, <laughs> they don't even tell us how many Kindles they sell in a year. I mean, he, to, that's a, that their flagship product or not. They don't, don't even tell us. So you're not going to get how many uh, Echoes copies. They you don't have to open the whole kimono. Just like flash me a little bit. Just, um, you know, just give us a preview. 
Yeah, just this one title. Just talk about this one book on the day that 10,000 people added it to their shelves, how many people then ended up in the Kindle store buying it because Amazon has that conversion data of people coming in from Goodreads. They know, I am positive that they Well, they don't even have to have them coming in from Goodreads. They can just see how many people bought it from all... You know, right, from but all if, traffic if they're talking about the impact of winning the Goodreads Choice Award, then then tracking coming in from Goodreads, yeah, is I, a useful I, I, way to do that. I just want to, I, I actually, just want to know something. I actually, Jeff, just something. I actually think this doesn't speak too greatly to the impact of the Goodreads Choice Awards. Frankly, mm-hmm. um, yeah, two I mean, million people two cast million, votes. Two million people cast votes, and ten thousand people at it. Um, and that's like a someday maybe I want to read this. Yeah, and that's the flagship category. I would think fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be interesting to see, you know, what were the impact on the other titles? Like, is this a cherry picked? I'm sure it's a cherry picked. Uh, yeah. Graph, right? Um, probably right, Allegiant. Is, there's not I, a huge spike because everyone put on there. I think we can assume if this is the graph they're showing this is the us, best it's one. the most impressive yeah, one. Yeah, I would think that's reasonable too. All right, let's do our next sponsor. All right, got a new sponsor this week. Um, we do. Call of the Herald by Brian Rathbone. It's the first in the Worlds of Godland fantasy series. So it's a family-friendly fantasy adventure, um, the beginning of a series. Um, and this is the first book. And it's uh, a young woman who's beginning to explore and find out she has these powers. And there's a world uh, in duress, and we got to figure out what to do. There's evil. So rising. if that's the kind of thing you like, and a lot of us do like these kind of things, it'd be awesome if you check out Call of the Herald by Brian Rathbone. And here's the deal. It's been out for a couple years, and the series has gone on, and uh, a lot of people like this book. We were yeah, looking around before the show. Speaking of Goodreads, lots of positive reviews. Lots of positive reviews there, so you can check it out there. Um, but they just made an audiobook version, and right now it's two bucks. I'm sorry, one ninety nine. For the audiobook. So if mm-hmm. this sounds like anything at all you're interested in, it's a nice time to get into it. And another thing they're doing that's really smart is if you buy the audiobook, ebook free, right there with you. Bundle baby. Which we have been crying and wailing and calling to the heralds ourselves about um, to get a bundle of an ebook and audiobook too. So maybe someone in your life and your family likes to read it, you want to read it in the car, or your kids want to read it. Um, it's good for the family. So like we were saying before, tryoutbooks.com, a lot of traveling this time we were with family. This might be one to check out. So here's what you do to get the deal. You go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash audio 199, and there will be the deal there for you. And you can check it out. Um, that's great. Young adults and up. Yeah, Anyone if, who likes fantasy. If you do, let us know. Yes. Uh, but it looks like a good option. You know, we always sort of we always go snooping around about the titles that yes. sponsor the show, um, so we know what readers are saying. And this uh, has a lot of Goodreads reviews, so a lot of people have checked it out. A lot of the reviews are positive. The Amazon reviews are positive as well of this new um, audio book, and you'll see that uh, if you go to uh, Bitly slash Audio One Nine Nine. And I poked around enough. Uh, it, it, it looks like this is a thing that readers have been into. Yeah, and, so and if you're I, yeah, looking I think... for fantasy. I think I can see what they're doing here is it's a series, and I think they think you're going to like that first one. So mm-hmm. they give me a little tease. That's give how you a show reason. a little leg. So they're showing a little leg, and then if you love the series, you go on and, and check out the other ones, which we like. That I like that model. Yeah, it's creative. That's a great model. So thanks to Call of the Herald by Brian Rathbone for sponsoring the show. Nice. Oh, we got more. We got a lot of juicy stats, juicy ones. Um, this is a great one. I, I got into this. Did you look at this PDF at all? A little bit, and then I was like, whoa, so many stats. So, so this is um, BookNet Canada did a study of the impact of the Nobel Prize win on Alice Munro's 
sales. Nice. Oh, and we were wondering about that. And we were just won. wondering, and we called it into existence here. Um, so the volume sold for all Alice Monroe titles. This is this this is the money graph uh, for me. There's a couple of interesting things here. So this they looked at what Alice Monroe was selling across a number of different countries, countries that usually buy a lot of um, English language authors, and then comparing the before and after. Mm -hmm. um, so the, I thought maybe more interesting than Nobel win was just the September numbers, which yeah. is nothing. I mean, it's just right. Alice Monroe being Alice Monroe. In Canada, yeah, the book's a year old, so that makes sense. The it, latest book is a year old. In Canada, 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 Canada. Say it, Jeff. Alison Monroe's home country. Uh, in the month of September, she sold this is across all titles, all titles, mm -hmm. about two hundred and sixty books. <laughs> can you believe that? Yeah, you can. I think that's kind of normal life for a literary fiction. But then now listen author. to this: the good old dumb U.S. of A. You know how many Alice Monroe titles we bought in that same stretch? But there are so many more of us. Yeah, let's try nine thousand. Are there that many more of us? There aren't. How many people do you think live in Canada? Oh, we're going to embarrass ourselves. <laughs> I'm not even guessing, but I'm going to say there are a lot. Fifty million. Fifty million. Thirty-five million. Thirty-five million people. All right. So, so and in like America, 10%? we have about ten. We have about ten times, right? We have about four hundred million. Uh huh. So we should only be buying to twenty five hundred. No, okay. So maybe also Canadians get the jump on Alice Monroe titles. Like, what? It would be interesting to see these numbers Don't from a year ago. Don't protect them. Don't when protect Dear Life, them. When Dear Life came out, did Canadians read it first, and then Americans were just sort of coming around to the new Alice Monroe book a year later? Don't okay. protect the Canadians. All right. Okay. So then when the Nobel um, is announced, you'd think that they, we all catch up, right? <laughs> November, Americans buy 100,000 Alice Monroe titles. Mm -hmm. The Canadians, you know how many they buy? Tell me. 12,000. Okay. But so that's like the, okay, the, the, the 10%. 10, times. Mm -hmm. 10 times. Okay. 10 times. But you know what? She's a Canadian. As a measure of percentage of the population. They bought no more per capita of their home woman's Nobel Prize winning books and Americans. They've got they've got an answer for this. <laughs> they've got an answer for this. This is unacceptable. <laughs> I did not expect this to be the direction this conversation. <laughs> where took. do you think I wanted to go? Where where do you think I wanted to go? That it that it's interesting that this is the impact of winning. Oh, the, you didn't the, think I was going to call down our maple loving friends up north? Canadians into the well, you know, man. they just sit up there, just minding their own business, saying how great their health care is. And they're just not reading Alice Monroe any more than we are, which I think they should be, right? Now, tell me you're not surprised by that. Tell me you're not surprised that Americans makes, read them. Like, the proportions make sense. Like, it's the but same. But don't you think they should read a lot more because that's her country? She's a Canadian. <laughs> you don't think they should read, like, at least a noticeable amount more per capita Alice Monroe than we do? Maybe I'm, Maybe it's me. And I think maybe it's you. You're not surprised. You're not surprised. I'm shocked. I wonder what the Margaret Atwood numbers look like. Why? Well, because Margaret Atwood is also Canadian and she's known as like, she's sort of the other big Canadian woman of letters. And so I'm curious about whether this is an America versus Canada thing mm. or like an Alice Monroe versus other Canadian authors. Thing. Maybe they hate her. 
you're saying Canadians hate Alison Monroe. Clearly, that is the message. That's what I'm getting from it. That's what I see. Even the line on the graph is red for Canada. Okay, so when the Nobel Prize was awarded, we were wondering how many books would she sell because a study had just come out about how the National Book Award winner sold like, what, 3,000 copies in the month after that. And we were wondering with her extensive backlist, would she sell a lot of books. And I think I was skeptical and you said, well, she's got this extensive backlist. She's probably going to sell a lot of books. And so yep. it's inter- like, this is, these are pretty good numbers to. Oh have. yeah. I think they're pretty good numbers. I'm, I'm happy actually that surprised. People are paying enough attention to the Nobel prize for literature that they went and bought a bunch of Alice Munro. Now here's also the other possibility is that maybe the can the Canadians know Alice Munro and they've all already read all of Alice Munro's books. So when she well, got explained to me the September prize, numbers, then they were like, yeah, we know her. Uh, and then when she won, more Americans had the catching up. To Explain you. to me the September numbers then. I don't know. That's Jeff. when they're just they're just bopping along, not reading Alice Munro. I'm just this whole direction you went here just took me by surprise. I'm just shocked. I just I'm just shocked. I'm appalled. <laughs> uh, the Canadians must answer. They they must. The Canadians must answer. But but the the top level story might be here that she, they didn't do a total here. At least I can t- I can look at or. Well, total number of books sold after the announcement mm. um you know but it looks House, like a couple hundred thousand yeah uh at least in the first few weeks uh which is pretty good you see the canadians buying alice Monroe versus doris lessings after her win they did not read doris lessing at all i mean mm-hmm. they went from buying 10 doris lessing books a week before the nobel win to 90 after the win so Anyway, there you so go. So at least they like Alice Monroe more. Yeah. I mean, that's 900% more, but that's a very small number. It would be interesting, and I think I've said it before, for Random House to release, now that it's been several years, um, something that shows the impact of Toni Morrison's uh, win of the Nobel Prize mm-hmm. on her on her backlist. You She's the, only published a few novels since then. You know, the Italians buy a lot of books. I mean, just looking at this graph, mm-hmm. they have 60 million people. Um, and this is for, you know, non-Italian speaker. I mean, they're just blown away um, per capita, a lot of the other countries. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that is. They have 60 million people and they're reading, you know, per capita two and a half times as many Alice Monroe titles as Americans are um, after the Nobel win. So, all right. Well, we're going to have to get a Canadian um, to answer for this. and We'll we have see a Canadian what... contributor. We'll just we call do. her out as tribute. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. I so told can, you I was really awake today. Uh, we're gonna have to wrap up here. Soon. We're gonna have to. So let's do. I want to do a shout out. Yeah, yeah. We'll do shout outs. We got this. Is another one we should cover, but we'll save that for next week. Yeah. So a shout out to our friends uh, Ann Kingman and Michael Kindness who do the Books on the Nightstand podcast. Um, Anne was a guest host with me while Jeff was on vacation this summer, uh, and they've been doing the show for several years. It's an excellent books podcast. Great uh, if show. You're, if you're looking for another one to listen to and you haven't already discovered it, definitely. Definitely check it out. But they release an annual holiday gift guide that is super comprehensive. Uh, and this year they've got two of them. Michael uh, just had a really fantastic nerd out and created a special geeks holiday gift guide. Uh, so there will be a link uh, in our show notes to the books on the nightstand holiday gift guides. But uh, between that gift guide and all of the recommendations that we dropped on episode 30 of our show, which is our our holiday gift guide. Like, I think you're pretty set. Anne and Michael just know their stuff. Uh, and their gift guide has literally something for everybody. 
uh, literally the best holiday gift guide ever. Well, and they're, they're booksellers by trade, so they know books. I mean, they are. We like to think we know books, but we don't know the books like. No, they're both uh, sales reps for Random yeah. House, and they have been for a while. And they and, go around talking to independent bookstores, uh, and they so and they, they know they what read, the booksellers are talking about, and they what's read interesting. widely, and they have great taste. Yep. Uh, and so I just, you know, there are a lot of holiday gift guides floating around on the interweb, and uh, the books on the nightstand is one that you should pay attention. to. I bet to. they both bought Alice Monroe books. Which I'm puts sure. them above 30, Actually, I'm 90% sure. of Canadians. I'm pretty sure I remember Anne tweeting about reading Dear Life uh, like well before the galleys were available to anyone else mm-hmm. uh, in publishing. I am certain that they have that they have read Alice Monroe, and so they do not need to answer for this. They don't need to answer. Canada. As far as we know, they're not Canadian. As far as we know. You never can tell. Um, oh, another Jeff. shout out to the whole <laughs> Shebang podcast. And Jen for recommending our show during their Enrichments and Enragement segment. That's wholeshebangpodcast.com. So we'll, we'll scratch your back. You scratch ours. We're not above that. Yeah, no, we just, uh, I always like to read or hear what uh, what people say about the show. So thank you to them for letting us know also that they were talking about us and for listening. Yep. Uh, and the whole shebang is hosted by a woman and her two daughters. They talk about all kinds of stuff. Uh, so if you're looking for just sort of like a random fun podcast, <laughs> you might give that one a shot last week. They talked about Amazon drones and a bunch of other things. Uh, it's not wholly bookish, but they do talk about books. Uh, so you might check that out as well. And speaking of books, it's kind of a slow period for new mm-hmm. books right now. We're going so to ditch it. We don't have new books this no week. No new books this week. But, but, you know, I was looking at the first week of January. Oh, my word. Yep. That's called the gift card bump. Is that what that is? I've wondered mm-hmm. why they do that. Is that yeah. what they do on purpose for people going to buy books with gift cards? It's a pretty new thing. Like That's January, interesting. January and February used to not be very big in publishing. And that in the makes last, a lot guess, of sense. In the last five years, um, it's become much more common to release big new titles really early in the year, even in the first um, couple weeks of the year, because you've got these readers with gift cards to bookstores just burning a hole in their wallets. I was going to say, because I was looking at um, the new Sumon Kid is coming out that week, and there was mm-hmm. some other big book. I can't remember right now. Um, And I was thinking, why don't they just release these three weeks earlier during the Christmas buying season? And I guess maybe that's the reason. Though Mm -hmm. it seems like if they were released three weeks early, people could still buy them with a gift card. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe. I don't know. Now we're asking publishing to make sense. Yeah. Well, you know what? Also, people, I mean, honestly, people in publishing start taking off. They're doing year end stuff, and maybe they don't want to do. Publicity is hard to get. I think new books really would get lost in yeah, this. best like, of year the, stuff. It's sort of in the end of year book media. Yeah. Um, I don't blame them for for holding on yeah, to it. Yeah, if you're not going to release it by mid-November, that actually makes a lot of sense too. I thought about that. Like you're just going to get drowned um, by and new stuff. And also out. all the book awards have already been announced. And That's occasionally right. book awards do go to books that are either brand new or sometimes that haven't been published yet, but that do come out right. in the year. But it's not uncommon to release something in January that you're hoping will get um, book nominations. Yeah. Like 10th of December last year was the right. first week of January release. Um, and probably a lot of people are buying those award-winning books, mm-hmm. you know, buying The Good Lord Bird. Uh, and uh, The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton. Yeah, so early in the year, we'll have some good stuff. I thought we would just sort of briefly talk about what we're reading now. Give oh, the folks um, a recommendation. Do you have what a What am I reading now? I'm not even, you know, I'm in grading hell, oh. so I'm not reading much of anything right now. And that's why right you're now. mad at Canada? <laughs> Is this just displaced anger? Oh, it's it's properly placed. It's properly placed. Don't, uh, don't misunderstand me. Uh-huh. Um, but when I am done, um, I think... 
I'm going to read something off our, I think I'm going to read that Constellation of Vital Phenomena. Mm. And, and I'm going to read um, uh, The Luminaries. I think that's going to be a big, my big. Oh, you're going to be busy for those uh, end of year holidays. Yeah, you know, I've got this. I've got these four weeks while the se- the semester is over, and I can sink my teeth into one. And and that one is, I guess, is well plotted. And I'm looking for a big plotty. Mm. I'm looking for something big and plotty. Big plotty should be your rap name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel pretty plotty these days. I need to get to the gym. Uh, why don't you tell us about what you're reading? <laughs> I'm reading The Woman Upstairs by Claire oh. Masood, which I very nearly missed. Uh, this one did get lost, didn't it? Well, there was a ton of buzz about it when it came out. Well, you was know, it she, buzz or just people talking about how we don't like lady characters? Well, both. Yeah. So uh, she's an incredible writer and that there was a she lot is. of talk and a lot of sort of hype around the book. And sometimes I just can't read the hyped books while the hype is happening, even if I think that I will probably like the book. I just need a little distance. Um, but between just sort of like the ongoing chorus about Claire Massoud and uh, the main character of this book is certainly an unlikable uh, woman. And for some reason, the book media like jumped on Claire Massoud for writing an unlikable female character. Well, then, it was the interview, right? Yeah, Someone asked gave, her about unlikable gave, characters and she kind of went on a jag. Right. She kind of went off about readers who judge the quality of a character based on whether they'd want to be friends with the character or not. Right. Like she she did not handle We the talked question. about this on the show, didn't we? So, like well, one of their early shows. We were yeah, like, yeah. Um, we get to like handle, what characters we want to like, Claire Massoud. Just yeah, shove well, it. And she didn't handle the question very well, no, but then no. um, that's a question that's generally only directed at well, female writers about true. female characters. And so no. that's, that's, that's a big hairy thing. But at any rate, I almost did not read this book, or at least I was just going to wait a long time. And I was cleaning off my TBR shelves earlier in the week, and I came across it, and I sat down, and holy crap, Jeff, <laughs> it's like... It, the pages are on fire. Oh, at least like the first need 15. some penicillin for that. It's it's so good. Um, the main. But how do you mean on fire? Uh, the main character of this book is a woman who is approaching middle age. She's an elementary school teacher. Um, she works on art on the side, but she always like she always wanted to be an artist. She always wanted to have a life that she felt like really mattered and made an impact. But oh, instead, female midlife crisis. I love these. This yeah, is a new thing. Relatively she, new thing. She sort of got she feels sort of pushed to the side by cultural expectations Mm. into being this sort of archetypal character that she calls that this character calls the woman upstairs. Uh, So this is not the mad woman Mm. in uh, the Jane Eyre attic. This is like the nice lady who lives in the apartment upstairs with her cat. Interesting. And she, you know, just sort of softly shuffles in and out and no one really notices her. And she doesn't ever make a fuss. Tends Um, to her flower pots. Right. Exactly. Tends to her flower pots. I know this character. And, yep, and, I know this character. and she's invisible. And this this woman, the main character of the book, is has become very aware of how this has been done to her. She feels like, and she is just sort. Of, she's like righteously angry. Uh, and the first fifty pages, at least, of the book are just filled with it. The voice is so strong, and it's it just burns. So um, I don't want to spoil or tie as anything, but is there some inciting like what's what turns well, her so around from a happens, gamma rays or a spider bite or something? What happens is that this new family 
uh, moves to town. There's a boy in her class whose mother is an artist and they oh. become friends. Um, she starts to share a studio space with the mother who is the artist who's sort of living the dream. And she falls a little bit in love, um, not with them as a family unit, but with each of them as individuals and um, with what this, this boy symbolizes, like the son that she has never had. Um, there is something illicit between her and the husband. And she's also got, I, I guess it's fair to call it like sort of a massive girl crush um, mm. on the uh, the other woman who is an artist and she's teasing out her feelings about these individuals and this just unfillable insatiable hunger mm. that she has for life and for all of the things that she feels like she's never going to get because she's the woman upstairs wow it's so that's pretty good. compelling <laughs> it is i can't so, read that now you, i have to admit it's so good even if uh if this is not the kind of plot that reader that that if you're a reader you don't normally go for, um, if you are interested in, or I think in writing, if you're a student of writing at all, like the, read the first chapter of the book um, and just read it over and over. It will it'll knock your socks off. Um, and I'm so glad that I didn't wholly skip it. It's really incredible. Were I still in grad school, I can see the woman upstairs becoming sort of a trope as something you use to understand things. Like, mm, uh, cause mm -hmm. it can, I bet if we read again, a lot of our favorite American sort of upper middle-class, middle-class novels, we'd see a lot of women upstairs. I bet we'd see them. <laughs> yeah. It feels to me like the woman upstairs is the, um, the next generation version of those women uh, that Betty Friedan wrote about who mm -hmm. had the problem without a name. You're not quite a fifties housewife who's bored out of her mind, but you have not fully reached like Sheryl Sandberg lean in. Potential. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You're not the CEO of GM now. Right. Or something it's an, like that. And it's an interesting look at where women are in, in contemporary culture that, that some women are pursuing you know, sort of ambitious goals, but that other women um, feel that they've been forced to make decisions hmm. Uh, against their ambitious goals. And, and she's pointing out, we all have these. Everybody has these ambitions. We all have these dreams about the kinds of people that we're going to be and what we're going to do. And at this woman's point uh, in her life, she's coming up against the reality that she's probably never going to be that person. And she's pissed. Well, I am now, as a student of um, literary fiction, very concerned for the well-being of the family she's become obsessed with. <laughs> I, I, I've seen this story uh, before to some degree. So if you, maybe, maybe we'll do like, a, you finish reading the book and we can do a follow-up next sure. week or let people know and we'll tell them spoiler alert and they can stop listening if they want to but we better end our show here we should we've come to the end of our time together which is sad and joyous as always um, you can follow us uh, on Twitter I'm at reading ape she is Rebecca Shinsky C-H-I-N-S-K-Y always find us at bookriot.com you can find show notes for this show we'll link to all the stories we talked about um, and to our great sponsors Call of the Herald by Brian Rathbone and try audiobooks.com. You can find those at bookriot.com slash podcast. You can review the show and rate it on iTunes, which will help us know how we're doing, but more importantly, will help other people to find the show and we will appreciate it greatly. We read all those reviews and we take your feedback to heart. Uh, and if you have any questions, any ideas, if you happen to know of an African-American author who has cracked the NIT's yeah. top 10 bestseller list recently, anything else, uh, give us a shout podcast at bookriot.com. Great. Thanks, you guys, so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.